1: Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives.
0: Okay, welcome back everyone. We are doing Exodus 7 through 17 today on our podcast. Now, you may note that that is actually two weeks of readings. Christopher and I decided that we wanted to combine two of the weeks. There's several reasons for it, but mostly we felt like we needed to get ahead on it, and we also felt like there is a sustained narrative going on here that we can uh, zoom out and do some overall discussion of that doesn't necessarily require that we split it up into two weeks. And so we felt like not only could we get ahead in the recording so that people could get this in a timely manner, but we could also address a narrative in a more consistent or cohesive way as we approached it. So as we start here into these chapters, uh, you know, actually, one of the things I I first wanted to bring up was I really appreciate Travis coming on with you last week, Christopher, and uh, doing the podcast for Exodus 1 through 6. Uh, Travis's knowledge really helped lay some, some good groundwork for this narrative here. And uh, it was really good to to listen to you and, and him uh, discuss that and really helped me start reading this with a little better perspective than I might have had otherwise. So yeah, thanks so much, Travis, for coming on.
1: Yeah, we had a good conversation. Thanks, Travis. You know, another thing, Ben, to, uh, worth mentioning is, you know, everybody here at Latter-day Peace Studies is a volunteer. You're a volunteer. I'm a volunteer. Two editors volunteer. And so, this is a, a gift in some sense that we want to give to the editors to give them some time, some more time, and also for the you know for the listeners, you've pointed out to get this out earlier in the week. Yeah. So, thanks to uh, Kyle Swingle and Tom Bogle for editing, and thanks as always to Shiloh Logan and Lindsay Olin, co-founders of Latter Day Peace Studies, for producing this podcast and promoting it. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I will say though that it does seem to me a little ironic that we would choose to do it this week because. This narrative that we're going to get into is arguably one of the the most, if not the most, central, formative, foundational narratives of all of scripture, right? Moses and the Exodus and the people coming out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and so forth is referenced in all the other works of scripture and, and constantly alluded to in not just scripture, but Countless volumes of literature, and so for us to to take that and try to approach even two two weeks of reading into one may seem a little bit. I would say maybe it's a little ambitious, but I think that it will make sense as we get into it. Starting here with chapter seven, this is when we start getting into the plagues. So remember that Moses has requested that. The people go free. And he comes to Pharaoh and says that. And Pharaoh hardens his heart. Now we have this, this interesting thing here about Pharaoh hardening his heart that we'll get into a little bit later. But what proceeds is is all of these plagues and they they become called plagues, but in the text itself, the only thing that's actually called a plague, I think, is the killing of the firstborns. And everything else is kind of considered a sign or a wonder of the power of God and as we go through all these plagues we we see this narrative building drama constantly and it gets to the point where pharaoh finally agrees to let them go so they go out and they uh, you know pharaoh falls them out they cross through the red sea and there's you know, this continued drama of their deliverance they finally get out into the wilderness they are quote unquote delivered and then They are faced with some additional challenges. They don't have any water. And so then they start whining, well, maybe we should have stayed in Egypt. And so the Lord solves that problem for them, the water problem. And then they complain, we don't have any food. And the Lord solves that problem for them. And then they have another water problem. The Lord solves it again. And then they get attacked or there's some sort of battle. That kind of comes out of nowhere, too. We might talk about that when we get to it. And again, the Lord's delivering them. And the mechanism for this varies a little bit from time to time. Sometimes it's Moses doing it. Sometimes it's the Lord doing it. Sometimes it's Aaron doing it. The staff seems to be central to this a lot of times, but not always. And some of that is most likely due to the combination of all these different narratives. You know, we've talked many times about this documentary. Hypothesis. It's the idea that there are many narratives that have been woven together into what we have now in the text. And sometimes these narratives repeat the story somewhat, and sometimes there's a little bit of contradiction between them. And so the editors, or sometimes they're called redactors, that put all of this together, they found creative and sometimes very genius ways of putting these together that it it feels a little more like the flow of a story and yet the closer you read the more you see that there is some little inconsistencies and and repetitions and omissions of certain details throughout the the different versions of the story as it flows and so that that just brings out that point that we are talking about uh, many traditions many stories that have been brought together into one here.
1: Yeah, and that's without even taking into account how many versions of the story there were before something got written down we call Exodus. Yeah. And then, of course, there's also different narratives within the library that we call the Bible that parallel and yet contradicts in some ways this story, such as in Numbers, in Psalms, and even in Exodus itself, because the poem that we'll read at the end in poetic form from uh, Robert Alter's translation contradicts the the rest of the story uh, in this week's reading or in these two weeks uh, of reading in some ways and in, in certain details. And so we see all kinds of evidence for this hypothesis.
0: Yeah, and and I think there's several takeaways from this and we've discussed them uh, multiple times. And it's that if we come to this looking for a historical account or what really happened, then we're really going to miss the purpose and the the intended purpose of those who wrote it the intended purpose of those who recorded it and then really even the the meaning and identity that the people who have kept and perpetuated this and curated this scripture for all these years all these centuries the meaning that they pulled from it you know again if we're looking for historicity then We're going to run into a lot of trouble, a lot of problems. Some of that comes out very starkly in this story because we are going to be discussing a lot of very supernatural events. And it's very common, I would say, for the tendency to arise to explain these events in a naturalistic way. For instance, you might say, "Oh, well, the the Nile turning to blood—that means that there was a particular algae that grew in the Nile during a certain time, and it and it caused this and this and that problem, and it was a red algae, and so they thought it was blood." Or, you know, that there are people that have actually gone through this story and given naturalistic explanations for every single thing that happens, and I really think that that isn't particularly useful in in helping us get meaning from the story because the main purpose stated in this story is that God is showing his power that his power is greater than the power of the gods of Egypt and if we take away that supernatural element and we put it just into a naturalistic set then we're taking away that core meaning that is brought out of this story, which is about the supernal, supernatural power of God above all other gods.
1: It's interesting, Ben, because we actually know how to read this text the way it was intended to be read or the way it's been read or the way the stories have been told, because the idea that we've been taught is to liken the scriptures unto ourselves. So whatever stories there were, we can't get at what happened. Something happened. Hmm. There's no doubt about that. Something happened. This story is about something that happened. But what happened has these layers of development in the way the story is told, and we can't trace those layers backwards to get at what actually happened. So what we get instead is what what happened meant to the people that it meant something to, and we in turn have to then make it mean something to us. And if we don't, then, well, it means nothing to us. It really is meaningless to us unless we actually make it mean something to us. And that's how we do it. That's how we read it. That's how the whole Old Testament is read by Christians, by reading Christ back into the text, where I'm talking about Jesus, the Christ. Jesus of Nazareth is being referred to, according to the Christian way of reading the Old Testament, all the time, right? This is what's going on. And for the ancient Israelite, that's not what's going on. Yeah. That's not it. So this is the way that we make meaning of this text for us as Christians.
0: Yeah, and we we can see that there's a lot of that symbolism that can be pulled out of that. And that has been done multiple times in in scriptural exegesis to to say oh well when when Moses is is going through the Red Sea and coming out of the Red Sea, you know, we even as Latter Day Saints, we see baptism there, right? And and obviously there is something going on with water and chaos, but it's not like a specific baptismal thing. We we have developed this meaning behind this ritual and ordinance that we relate back to maybe a similar concept and meaning that it had for the people writing it down. But it's not like God was taking them through the the sea to baptize them the way that we would think about it. So. Sometimes we tie things together too tightly, right? And, and they need right. to be loosened up a little bit to, to realize, hey, these are actually pointing at a, at a much broader meaning than we try to, to narrowly
1: squeeze them into. And, and at the same time, it's not that foreign. So if we just loosen up the narrative a little bit, as you, as you put it, right, then, okay, it's not Moses getting baptized. But what's happening with Moses and water as a symbol of chaos, and there's a sort of a rebirth here in some sense, that's what's happening in baptism too. Right. So in that sense, the, the two occurrences are alike. But I think if we call it a baptism, that muddies the waters a little bit.
0: Yeah, it, it can skip over the meaning, right? It ties something together without going back to the, the, the deeper type of, of original meaning there and and that can happen sometimes with our Christological approach as well and so it it can be really helpful for us to step back and say well what really is going on here archetypally you know in terms of what what is it that is being presented to us that that turns us to Christ not not just in a like historical sense but like in a deeper psychological personal sense. Yes. And I think that is is actually one of the really useful ways I found recently to look at a lot of these stories and and this was brought to my attention by Jordan Peterson when he went through a lot of the biblical stories and and analyzed them from a psychological perspective to say, "Hey, these stories uh, developed and evolved and pushed their way through the collective consciousness and memory of people because they they had deep psychological meaning and they they survived the evolution, if you will, of oral tradition because of their inherent psychological value that people couldn't express any other way. They knew there was something important and meaningful there, but they they couldn't put their finger on it exactly. All they could do is is tell a story. And and what's so fascinating about about that approach is that there's actually a couple times in this text where it, there's an allusion sort of that fact because. What you have is is the Lord telling the people, "Hey, when you get into your land and you're doing this thing where you eat bitter herbs and unleavened bread and lamb and and you stand there with your your hat on and your staff, and your children say, "What are you doing?" you can say, "Well, we're doing this because of blah 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 that happened in the past in Egypt, and we were delivered and what's being said there is, hey, this is pointing to a deeper identity and meaning, but they didn't." They didn't have any other way to express that. Like in abstract terms, the only way they could express it was through a narrative and a story, and so that's how it survived and imbued the meaning within the identity of the people.
1: Ben, I'd like to back you up in in recommending to the listener the Psychological Significance of the Biblical Stories lecture series Mm -hmm. by Jordan Peterson found on YouTube. I think you can find it under that title or just Biblical Series with his name, Jordan Peterson. And I'd like to actually add another source, you know, because something else we can say about this is that, as Richard Rohr pointed out, there is a universal Christ. So, while Jesus is the Christ, there's more to the Christ Mm -hmm. than Jesus.
0: Yeah. Jesus presented to us the perfect pattern of Christ, but we try to emulate that pattern of Christ in many ways.
1: So, we find that. And we can see that pattern present itself in the past, correct, before Jesus of Nazareth, and we can see it present itself today. Yeah, exactly.
0: Christopher, was there anything else you wanted to talk about, like sort of of, of overall meaning and, and structure of the, the narrative and meaning to it, before we kind of dive into some of the finer points?
1: I can't think of anything at at this point.
0: It'll come out as we go into the finer points. Though. Yeah, as we go through the
1: text, <laughs> that I may have some some more to say that you know that pans back out to this level of analysis. But let's go into the text and and go into the the details a little bit. I just
0: thought of something. You know, we've talked about this point a lot, but we're going to see a lot of violence in this story, and a lot of violence committed by God in the story, and. One thing came to mind as I was listening to the recording that you did with Travis last week, and it was that a lot of times we talk about the text, hey, God is doing this, and God is doing this, and, and God's actually the one killing this person here, and God's commanding him to lie, and stuff like that. We talk about it in those terms as if that's what we believe actually happened historically, but what we're saying in those terms is that is what is actually happening in the text We're not making a statement about the character of God, we're making a statement about what the people in the story believe about the character
1: of God. And once again, what the people at that time believe about, I'm not actually going to say about the character of God, I'm going to say about what's happening.
0: Yes. Okay, that might be better. Yeah.
1: No, but it's both, right? It's Mm. both and. What you said is true, and I'm now adding that whatever is happening— God is making it happen. So that goes to your point.
0: Yeah. They're assigning meaning to it in
1: the text. Exactly. So, yeah. So so on the one hand, we have your point that is, God is Yahweh, or as we say, the Lord, is our warrior god. He's the he's the Israelite tribe's warrior god, just like every other tribe around them has their warrior god. And my warrior god's gonna beat up your warrior god. My warrior god's bigger than your warrior god, right? And on the other hand, Everything that is happening in the ancient mindset, God's making happen. If it's happening, it's because God's making it happen. Yeah.
0: So this is brought out right here at the beginning of chapter seven because the Lord tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and set his people free. And if he doesn't, then he's going to get what's coming to him. But then the Lord tells Moses that ultimately, this is what's going to happen. Farrell's not going to set you free because I'm not going to let him set you free yet because I need to, you know, make this fight go three rounds, so to speak, right? (laughs) Ten rounds, right? right? So knock him down, but he needs to get back up. We're not going to allow the the ref to count to ten and and say the fight's over. He's going to get back up and we're going to go ten full rounds with this guy so that I can show him how much i really can beat him up and i i know that's you know that's that's kind of a violent way of putting it but that's what the text says and that's to the point we were just talking about that this is the way that people viewed what was happening and what god was intending to do and this is part of this narrative of the bible that the people are coming to understand god but they're in very early stages of this remember these people have lived in egypt among gods that operate this way for all of these hundreds of years. And so their entire concept of what God is, is tied up within these ideas. And the, the only idea they're coming to understand now, it seems by the text, is that their God is just the biggest bully on the block right now, and he's going to show it. And so what he does is say, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart I'm gonna make him keep getting up so that I can keep knocking him down. And so he does that over and over. And we have all of these plagues. And after each one, you know, Pharaoh is like, okay, I'll I'll let you go. And and there's sort of these incremental things that happen. He says, Well, at one point he says, Well, just the men need to go because you're the only ones that need to go sacrifice. You shouldn't have need anybody else to go. And uh, Moses is like, No, we have to all go. And then he's like, Well, just Just the just the people. You don't need to take your animals with you. And Moses is like, no, we have to take the animals with us because we have to sacrifice. And, you know, anyway, there's this sort of this progression where the Lord through Moses is is pushing Pharaoh further and further until he, he finally completely breaks all within the plan, quote unquote, of the Lord, so that he can show, it says here in the text. He can demonstrate that he is the most powerful
1: God. And that's the point, right? Because otherwise, he could have just let them go in the first place. Mm-hmm. You don't need to go nine or ten rounds. By the way, it depends on which version of the story you're reading, whether it's nine or ten rounds, right? right? But this reminds me of something else before we actually go into the text more. We haven't really covered, you and I talked pre-show about this idea of how it is that this story comes to be told in this way. Mm. We talk, you, you've talked a little bit about how stories like this come to be in general, but this particular story, Ben, how does this particular story, how does a story like this particular story come to be in the way, you know, the way that it is?
0: That's a really good question. Part of it has to do with forming the identity of this people right and there's a lot of literary stuff going on here there has to be a drama built around what's going on and so this is all, this whole drama is being built up to the point that god can finally come in and do that final thing where he kills the firstborn and you know like you said Christopher something happened and over the years you get these this collective memory and oral traditions that develop around this story, and they all get put together such that we get what we have now. Now, one of the interesting theories, I should say, or commentaries that I heard on this was that each of these 10 plagues, or signs and wonders as they're called, the final one's called the plague, actually could be relating to a specific Egyptian god. Now, obviously, there were more than 10, but there could have been 10 egyptian gods that each were related to these specific types of plagues or the what happens in these plagues and what's going on in this story is that the narrative is showing how god is more powerful than every single one of these egyptian gods and completely overpowers them until we finally come down to the the ninth one which he he blots out the sun right so the sun god and then The the very last one he kills the firstborn. Well, that would be Osiris, right? You know, the the god of of the dead. So that was one of the interesting analysis that I I saw of this uh, that I thought had some merit. So thinking about
1: again, we can't really get access to what happened because of the accretions and whatnot. But going back to you had this uh, idea you shared with me again, something you read from commentary where there's a group. Of Israelites in Egypt, you know, how did they get there? Maybe mm. different from what the story tells us? How many were they? A lot fewer than what the story right. tells us? Oh yeah, et cetera do, do you want to go through that a little bit? yeah, so I mean the the idea would
0: be if if we're trying to get back at this kernel of what really happened historically, definitely we're looking at some sort of people maybe of of Asiatic descent that were in Egypt and there were many reasons that people of Asiatic descent would have been in Egypt. They maybe have were brought back as captives in a war, or as the narrative goes in the Bible, they went there because there was a time of famine elsewhere, and and Egypt was a very it was very rare to have some sort of famine in Egypt because of the consistency of the Nile, right? So Egypt was always throughout all the ancient world was the breadbasket of the Mediterranean of the ancient world, and so you would have these periodically maybe these asiatic peoples settling there and then over time they they might get subjugated in one way or another and try to leave but because of the way that egypt is positioned and its power it would have been extremely rare for a people to actually escape actually be able to get out of egypt but what you have is is a people who coalesced around some sort of identity and they were able to get out and the fact that they made it out to them and their leader seemed so miraculous that they told their descendants about this, and these stories started coalescing around this this narrative um, of their history. And so that's where we can kind of see something like this developing in in a truly historical context, because that type of thing we do see in historical records. If we're really trying to tie this to that. Otherwise, there's again, we talked about archaeologically, historically, there's not a whole lot of evidence for the story unfolding it like this. In fact, there's almost none. But what we can see are bits of similar historical events or occurrences that could inform a historical development of a narrative such as
1: this. And so what's interesting then is the people who had this experience that was so miraculous in their experience, as they rhetorically speaking, as they tell the story, they have to do something rhetorically to make it so much larger than life. Yes, as they experienced it. And so that's what we get here with, with this kind of hyperbole. One of the things that, that tipped me off, you know, among many uh, when it comes to this story is in, in terms of its likely historicity as told, right, is this idea not just that the Pharaoh would keep making the same mistake over and over again. I mean, doesn't he realize after a few times that it's just going to happen the way Moses and Aaron tell him it's going to happen, and it's not going to be good for him and his people. But it was the priests who, when the hail comes, the text tells us some of them, when they heard the hell was coming, they believed it, and they protected their herds. Or their animals, or whatever, and others didn't. And you think, really, they didn't? <laughs> Don't they see what's happening? Yeah, the
0: hail's one of the later plagues, so wouldn't they have been like,
1: hey, right? So quite much. a few yeah. things have happened. Yeah. So I know we're not going to go into a lot of detail through these plagues. So I, I just wanted to make that kind of comment about them to add to yours.
0: I think for me, one of the points you you know you brought out one of the things that's like, hey, there's there's something else going on here than a historical account is. This is when it talks about 600,000 men being part of, of the exodus, you know, not counting children. right. And it, it just doesn't work in terms of ancient populations and guiding a, a people that, you know you calculate from that. It's something like two and a half million people that uh, you're leading through the Sinai desert. It just doesn't work. I mean, at one point they find a place with 12 springs and uh, what is it, 70? Palm trees, and it's like that's not enough for two and a half
1: million people. <laughs> no, it's not. And, and you know, to put this into perspective, too, a large army at the time is about twenty thousand men, right? So on, you know, on the other hand, boy, the pharaoh really did have cause for concern if he had that many Israelites sure. living in his land, right? Sure,
0: <laughs> yeah, and 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 to the point, you know, the the reason it's told that way is to bring out the miraculousness of this story to to really emphasize the power of God. And so, that that is what's on display here is the power of God. And when we look at this narrative, we certainly aren't disputing the actual power and ability of God to perform any of these miracles, simply saying the way that the story is told is in
1: a rhetorical way. Right. So, by the way, again, that that power is very violent, right? When mm-hmm. every time that we read that God is going to stretch forth his hand, that means he's going to he's going to be violent that's what mm. that means yeah and and we actually see that he is in fact violent but again that's how the people that wrote the text saw god and as gregory boyd has pointed out in his book cross vision in my own words you can imagine god saying okay guys i'm not your warrior god that's not who and what i am and we know this because we see the cruciform christ and this is how we have to understand god right this is god incarnate and so if that's the image of God, then this idea that the ancient Israelites are giving us is the funhouse mirror, right? It's not, it's not what God looks like. Hmm. And so you can imagine him say, okay, guys, I'm not your warrior God, but I'm glad you're praying to me. Keep praying to me. I'm going to stay in, in, con- in contact with you and relationship with you and kind of bring you along and, you know, you'll get to know me as, we, as this relationship develops and you'll understand who I am. Yeah. And we get to that point through Jesus of Nazareth that we get to see who God is in the cruciform Christ.
0: And and even before then, as the Old Testament progresses, you do get more and more discussions of these kinds of things. You know, not only is, you know, in this case, God is just destroying their enemies indiscriminately. He, you know, he doesn't care for men, women, or children. The point is deliver his people. And then in the later books of the Old Testament, we start seeing this, well, you know, especially when they get out of Egypt, right? You have to care for the the traveler and you you have to do justice to your enemies in this way. And so, there, there become all these stipulations as the people come into a more nuanced or peaceable understanding At least developed. of this God. Yeah, developed, I think is, is a better word for it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, you know, without belaboring the point any further... I don't even know that we need to say anything more about the plagues, do we, Ben?
0: No, I, not necessarily. Uh, again, the the way that the whole narrative is drawn out is for a particular rhetorical purpose, and there's some interesting, you know, nuances and symbolism you can get out of each of them. But to our purposes and point, we, we've kind of touched on that. So basically, we get to the point of the Passover here. We, we've got the final one where the firstborns are killed, and the point of the Passover, this becomes this mode, this ritual, this festival that becomes established among the people. And we see this in an etiological way, right? So the Israelite people, as they've settled in the land of Canaan and have developed their their nation and their identity as a people, they have these festivals that they celebrate, and they do things in a certain way. And part of Exodus is an etiological explanation of where this all came from and why they do it in the way that they do it and you know just just like with a lot of other things there could be this kernel of historic origin to this but how it's all fleshed out and and exactly how they came to perform the ordinances and rituals in that way might be much more difficult to get at
1: right and yet they tell us you know this story later on about how these things came to be we do also have a coalescing of sort of, you know, fertility rituals and things like this that become co-opted and part of the Israelite religion. Just like later on, we have Christmas, you know, it becomes mm-hmm. the, this winter solstice becomes Christmas in the Christian tradition. And, you know, actually, uh, that I just remembered something about the, the plagues that I did want to mention as I think about the bread, you know, the unleavened bread. You mentioned earlier that Egypt is the breadbasket. It's interesting to note, among other things, that that we have sort of given short shrift, right, is that they at one point one of the plagues makes it so they can't have anything to drink. And then it's that they can't have they can't make bread, right? They can't drink because the water's blood. They can't make bread because the the frogs are in the mix, right? And so we can, and all kinds of things. I don't even remember reading anything about the parallels between that and what happens with the, you know, with Moses and his people later on with eating and drinking too. Right? There's so yeah. many details like this that you can see in the text. And so I would just invite the the listener to just read closely, to read closely. These are so, these stories are so familiar that it's easy to sort of you know go into a trance as you read them, and yeah, I already know this, and you just sort of cruise in, through it and. You're not really paying attention because you already know what it says, and so if you, if you read a little bit more closely, you might see all kinds of things and and a good you know a good study Bible will give you some good commentary that we won't you know we won't rehearse all of that here we've done our reading of our study bible commentaries and whatnot so
0: uh one point I want to go into a little bit about the leavened bread because this has always been something that's a little odd to me, and as I was reading through it this time like They spend a lot of verses talking about unleavened bread. (laughs) And I thought, like, why is this talking about this so much? And it says it like three or four times. It repeats the same thing about unleavened bread. So uh, let me just read a few of the verses here. This is uh, chapter 12, verse 11. This is how you shall eat it, your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord and then we go over to uh, verse 26 and it says and when your children ask you what do you mean by this observance you shall say it is the passover sacrifice to the lord for he passed over the house of the israelites in egypt when he struck down the egyptians but spared our houses and then here some more on the unleavened bread this is when they're they're actually leaving egypt so the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their cloaks on their shoulders. Now, Christopher, you know this because your wife makes sourdough bread, but it's less common nowadays for people to make bread in the more, it's not even ancient way, but the way that they made bread you know, just a few hundred years ago. And that's by using the natural yeast from the
1: air. It is actually ancient because as you've pointed out, this way of making what we call sourdough bread just means you're using what I'll call real yeast. It's yes. just this yeast that comes from the air. What are the ingredients of the bread my wife and kids make? It has flour, water, salt, and the yeast that's this San Francisco sourdough start that just comes from the air. It, and it's actually the it was actually the ancient Egyptians who discovered this. I mean, they just yes. there's some flour, it gets wet, and something happens. You know the yeast is in the air and it gets in there and it starts doing its thing. It's a living thing. Yeah, but the process takes time, right? And and like oh yeah, in our it does. Modern, it takes hours.
0: Yeah, it takes hours. Well, sometimes uh, days. Like if you want to start from scratch, right?
1: Right. Okay. Right. To create the to create the start create from it. scratch, yeah. that's going to take uh, some some hours. And then once we mix the dough, it's a twelve hour uh, rise. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I mean. It's a long process, I will say if nobody's done it. It's totally worth it. The bread is just way more delicious than whatever you buy like in store <laughs> for for that kind of thing.
1: And for those not just, you know, if you're celiac, that's one thing, but for those who have gluten intolerance at some level, the the natural yeast actually breaks down the uh, gluten and it makes it so that you can actually digest it yeah. without having those problems. When you take when you take a shortcut when you when you shortcut nature And we can do that, right? We have this this artificial yeast that we use and it saves time, but there's a cost.
0: Well, and that's the point here, right? Is that, that leavening bread and having it rise, this is a long process. It takes a lot of time. It's not something that can be rushed. And so they're eating unleavened bread because they have to make their food in a hurry and go. They have to take it with them and cook their food on the go. They can't let the bread sit and rise. They're traveling when you're traveling, right? Like if you're constantly just jostling that bread, tell me if I'm wrong here, but you know, you're not getting the same rise out of it, right? It has to sit and be still.
1: You know, I don't make the bread, my wife and kids do, <laughs> but, but it does okay, usually well, sit Okay, well, I might be still.
0: going off into the weeds there.
1: Yeah, there's, there is, you know, some, some mixing that happens, but then there's a lot of time that it just sits yeah. there and remains still I, and undisturbed. I think undisturbed. the main
0: point here being that of time. And so, yeah. uh, it just kind of came out to me here that them eating the unleavened bread is this constant reminder in their mind that they had to get out of Egypt right away, right? Before Pharaoh changed right. his mind. <laughs> and, and so, they, they had to get up and go. And so, that's why they eat with the staff in their hand, their hat on, and uh, they're, they're ready to go. They baked unleavened cakes of the dough. This is verse 39 of chapter 12. That they had brought out of Egypt. It was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. So one of the points out of this verse that I just read is that it says this, it says they were driven out of Egypt. Well, see, this seems to be a little inconsistency in the narrative because part of this sustained narrative here is that Pharaoh is is letting them go, right? But what's being driven out isn't exactly clear here and so it could be that we've got we've got some different narratives here and from some people's perspective they are being driven out and from another narrative's perspective like they're leaving you know of their own accord so
1: or, or the main narrative that we get here is that they want to leave and they're not allowed to so that's really different from being driven right. out right right so going back though to verse 9 there's something else you reminded me of when it comes to to the food right why the, why the meat has to be roasted? You know, why couldn't they boil it? Why couldn't they eat it raw? You know, by the way, that, that may seem like a nonsensical question. I've had raw lamb, and I had it in, in Aleppo, Syria, and I was sitting across the table from my doctor, who was the one who ordered it. My physician, <laughs> my personal physician and friend told me to eat this. I said, well, you know, he's my doctor. If he's telling me to eat it, it must be okay. And it was delicious. And, and you know, it was, I say it was raw. It was prepared. You know, we say that sushi is raw fish. It's not really raw. It's just uncooked, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's cured in some way. It's prepared right. in some way. Otherwise, it, it might be a problem. But they couldn't eat it raw and they couldn't eat it boiled. It had to be roasted because this ensures that the blood is removed. And that, that blood yeah. is a symbol of life and it belongs to God. And this is the roasting the meat is the only way that we make sure that that blood is removed, and it goes back to God where it comes from so there's there's reasons for these things well, it's the allusion to sacrifice as well right the the
0: The burn sacrifice you know that's this is not you're roasting it and you're eating it yourself, but then it says if anything remains, you have to burn it in the fire it it can't remain to the next morning because it all has to go to God. The use of the word holocaust is that it's a it's a particular type of sacrifice whereas you, you had some where you roasted and the priests ate it. The Holocaust is a, a complete burnt offering where you put the meat on the altar and you completely burn it till it's completely gone, right? It's completely consumed in the sacrifice in the fire.
1: So that Holocaust word that you bring up, that's related to what you were saying earlier about burning everything that's not consumed? Correct. Yeah.
0: So in the narrative, the people, uh, you know, they get out, they're going away. And sure enough, you know, Pharaoh does change his mind again and has an army that comes after them. Then we have in the narrative here that the Lord leads them in a particular way. So if you can try to picture in your mind, the the map of Egypt and Sinai and the land of Canaan or, or Palestine in your head, the shortest route from where the Israelites were, which is probably the, the Eastern Delta in, in North Egypt would be to just follow the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, just stay close to the coast until you get to Palestine, and that is what it's re- referred to as the way of the land of the Philistines, and that would be the most sensible way
1: to go, right? By the way, Ben, the land of the Philistines is an anachronism. Yeah, here, right? <laughs> right. There, there are no Philistines <laughs> until right about this time, actually. Yeah,
0: it gives away the writer of the text, right? Yeah, they tip their hand. And there's a few times actually through this narrative where they, they tip their hand a little bit on that. But they don't go that way. And it says that the Lord intentionally leads them into the wilderness. And not necessarily with the idea that he's going to keep them in the wilderness for 40 years, but there's, there's a couple couple purposes, it seems, to this. One is that if they went straight into the land, they would immediately experience battle and they aren't ready for that they would then just want to go back to Egypt because they wouldn't want to fight the battle. And so the Lord doesn't lead them that way because they're not ready for battle yet.
1: Hey, maybe that's the reason we get this random battle coming up <laughs> yeah, to, to battle-harden them. Too. Yeah. There, there are probably other Prepare literary them. reasons, but, yeah. but isn't that interesting? <laughs>
0: yeah. And then the other reason is because he knows Pharaoh's going to come after them and he wants to trap Pharaoh so he can knock him out one more time. This is the final blow for Pharaoh here. So, the Lord is intentionally leading Pharaoh into a trap. That's the idea that's going on in the text here. In fact, it says in verse 21 of chapter 13 the Lord went in front of them in a pillar of the cloud by day to lead them along the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light so that they might travel by day and by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So, the Lord is actually leading them where they're going. And then it says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is chapter 14, and he will pursue them so that I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh. This is the Lord speaking, and all his army. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And so, again, it's intentional.
1: And again, that's maybe 20,000. Yeah. Right? An army of maybe 20,000 at the largest. And what did you say? 600,000 Israelites? But it's the Lord who's going to handle this with water. Right, which again is a symbol of chaos and of, of returning something back to the beginning. We It's a symbol back to, or a, a, a reference back to Genesis. Yeah.
0: This is a clear allusion to the creation. And it's hard to really say whether the creation is alluding to this or this is alluding to the creation. Because you know, when, when we did our first podcast, we talked about how the beginning is Exodus. right, And that the creation is that that foundational story in order to explain how we got here. And so in, in one sense, you could look at it as the creation is the story that's alluding to this moment. And in another sense, you could look at this moment as alluding to the creation. And I think, I think it could be either or, and it doesn't change the fundamental point of this is that these two are being tied together. And when, when God is redeeming these people or delivering them, he's recreating them. And that's exactly what, that's intentionally done by the author of this. It's, it's constructed in a way that rhetorically what's happening to the people here is they're being brought out of the waters of chaos. The dry land is appearing just like in the creation, and the people are being brought out onto dry land just like in the creation, just like with Noah, right? We had a repeat of the story there. And the same words, vocabulary is used, and and God is creating this new
1: people. And that vocabulary may not be evident in your translation necessarily, mm. but behind it, the original does show that. And as a matter of fact, one of the evidences, I, I think Travis and I talked about this. I know we talked about it. I just, I, I'm not sure if we talked about it on air. Mm. You know, okay. we, 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 we do see one of the evidences that we already know that Genesis is, is a late text. But one of the evidences that we can see that, that Exodus is written first and that Genesis is written to mirror Exodus in that way that you're describing is things like you know words. There's, there's an Egyptian loanword, which is this word, for example, one of them is, and there's several Egyptian loanwords in the text. One of them is the one that's used for the basket, that's translated the basket that Moses is in. Well, that same word Occurs only one other time in the text, and that's in Genesis, and it's the ark. So the same word is translated ark and basket. It's translated different ways because of the context, right? And it's an Egyptian loan word, so it's coming out of Egypt back into Genesis, right? Backwards in time, yeah. And that that's because of the order in which the texts are written. And so yeah, this is as you know we pointed out in the introduction to the Old Testament podcast in last week's episode with Travis. We're at the beginning of the story now, and this is the central narrative of the whole and you said earlier in this podcast Ben that it shows up in all the scriptures by which i think you meant the lds standard works right it's in the sure. old testament it's in the new testament it's in the doctrine and covenants it's in the book of mormon yep but it's also central to the quran yeah so
0: moses goes and parts the sea there's a lot going on right in here and and you've talked about this before Christopher that this text is very compressed and so, there's a lot that could really be dived into, I think, with the nuances of of what's going on here, of, of Moses parting the sea. One of the things that puzzled me, and I, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot and get your thoughts on it, and it's okay if you don't have any thoughts on it. I just – so, I'm going to go to verse 13 of chapter 14. It says, but Moses said to the people – now, remember, multiple times the people – this is one of the first times – this might be the first time the people are complaining and saying, hey, why did you even bring us out of Egypt to die here? We were better being slaves in Egypt than to just die here. And Moses, he gets very tired of the people whining at him, but you know he's he's early in, in the game here. So, But he says, but Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. Now, the keep still thing here, I didn't really pick up on this until I listened to Pete Enns talk about this. He takes this as be quiet, like stop whining. It's not like be peaceful and reach your inner zen (laughs) necessarily. It's stop whining, stop complaining, shut your mouth (laughs) type of thing. Shut up. So then the next verse I'm not sure how to tie these together. It's, I, I feel like there's even something missing here, and so I don't know how to tie them together. Because the very next verse says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. Now, there's not anything where it says that Moses cried out to the Lord, as far as I could tell. And so, the verse seems to reference something that's not there. Do you see anything, Christopher? Do you have any comment on that?
1: Not in this particular way. I, the thing that occurs to me to say at this point with your question to, is to notice in this text that sometimes Moses is the one doing the things, hmm. at other times Aaron's the one doing the things, and at other times it's the Lord who's doing the things. Yeah. And so I think that's something that I see here that could maybe answer your question, right? Thinking about that in terms of this, these two weeks readings. As a whole, that's something that I see that could answer this question. I'd have to think about it. That's true. You know,
0: sometimes the subjects of these get a little bit ambiguous and confused and maybe even misplaced. I mean, this might even make sense if we said it was Aaron saying this instead of the Lord. I don't know that that's the case. You know, you said sometimes it's Moses, sometimes it's Aaron, sometimes it's the Lord. Actually, in a few verses later, it's the angel of God. Whereas before it said the Lord went in front of them, in a pillar of cloud by day and and pillar of fire by night. But then in verse 19 of chapter 14, it says, The angel of God, who was going before the Israelite army, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. Right. You know, this kind of goes to a point we said earlier, is that sometimes in the text, there's this angel thrown in front of God to try to deal with some uh, theological problem that was seen. I don't necessarily see that there's a theological problem here, but it is interesting that it's ambiguous. Okay, is this the angel or is this the actual, actually the Lord? And and it's not always clear.
1: Yeah, it could be that that somebody saw God doing something that shouldn't be God doing it, and they just put angel in front of God. And the way the Hebrew grammar works is that's all you have to do. If you just put in angel before God, it becomes an angel of God. You don't need the the of. And so, Dan McClellan mentioned this in one of his TikTok videos or something like that, one of his videos, maybe maybe YouTube, and uh, he's talking about how every time that you see an angel of God, that it looks like stuff that God would do, and that when you see just an angel, then it's things that angels would do. Something like that, right? Yeah. It could
0: be an example of something... Yeah, something being inserted into the text.
1: Yeah, I may be getting that wrong. I'd, I'd refer listeners to Dan McClellan. He's, he's got some good videos on TikTok. We've talked about Jabra name. He may have something to say in, in Jabra's Gospel Thoughts. And then you mentioned Pete Ends. What is it? Pete Ends ruins Exodus, something like that. Uh, he's got several several podcasts.
0: Yeah, so he has a series he does on that that's within his podcast. That's the Bible for Normal People, which and he has some, Great some really interesting... Perspectives there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He's a fun guy guy. to listen to, too. I first heard Pete Enns interviewed on the Maxwell Institute podcast uh, when his book, The Sin of Certainty, came out, subtitled something like Why God Wants Your Trust More Than Your Correct Belief.
0: Yes. Yeah. Now that you say that, I do remember listening to that. I want to go back and listen to that again. Really profound concept, I think. Yeah. So the next chapter here is poetry. And this is well, it's not the first poetic utterance in the Bible so far, but it's definitely the longest so far. Am I correct in that?
1: I'm not sure, Ben.
0: I think it is. So you know, if we have any poetic verses previous to this, like in in Exodus or in, in Genesis, there are instances of, of poetry, but they're typically much shorter. This one's longer. And this is basically a retelling of this whole narrative there are some inconsistencies sometimes uh, and contradictions, but it's a retelling of the whole narrative almost from start to finish in poetic form. And there's a lot of clues here as to the fact that this poem, this chapter 15, is actually one of the earliest, if not the earliest account of the Exodus, just this poem itself. And there's, there's many reasons for that. One of the reasons is that If stories start as oral traditions, which it's pretty consistently shown that they do, as they're passed down, the way to keep them more consistent is to put them into a poetry form, because that gives you a mnemonic device. And when we look at poetry today in our language, one of the most common elements of poetry is rhyming and that has to do with the endings of words however particularly in ancient languages it was difficult to get endings of words to match up in a particular way and and this was because case had a much more prominent role in in languages now this gets into you know some some nitty-gritty of linguistics but but basically suffixes and endings of words were very dependent on their function within a sentence and so you would have these endings of words change quite often so it wasn't so easy to get rhyming happening and and in fact it it wasn't necessarily desirable it just wasn't really a thing this is a a more a more recent device used in poetry what was used in ancient poetry style was alliteration the beginnings of words repeating the sounds that words begin with and so What you had in poems like this that we find in chapter 15 in the Hebrew that it was written in would have been a lot of alliterations. And these helped as devices to keep this poetry memorized and passed down from generation to generation. So that's one of the reasons you can tell that typically the earliest forms of a story, especially written down, are poetic, are poetry. And the prose of a story. Will typically come later, and that's because as the story goes from an oral tradition to a written tradition, it passes through this poetry phase. And again, in the ancient tongues, there wasn't a lot of rhyming. What there was was a lot of alliteration. So when we look at certain translations of chapter fifteen, these are going to be maybe like word for word translations, and they're not going to always really get the the feel. Uh, of the poetry. And, you know, Christopher, when we did our first podcast introduction to the Old Testament, we talked about translation. And then we talked about poetry, how the Bible has poetry in it. And the function of poetry in literature of the Bible isn't the same as the prose. It's to evoke a different type of experience. And so, when it's translated as if it were prose, you lose that. You lose that function. And something that you came across, Christopher, was that there have been efforts to translate the poetry of the Bible and maintain a lot of that poetic feeling and, and nuance and experience.
1: Yeah, and I remember talking about the difference between functional and dynamic equivalency in translation. What we get when we go word for word is what we call functional equivalency. What we get when we go more thought for thought or you know meaning for meaning is this dynamic equivalency. And when it comes to poetry, poetry isn't propositional. You know, prose is propositional, and that speaks more to the intellect, whereas poetry being non-propositional is more of an emotional appeal. And so there's that, right? So I have a translation in front of me from Robert Alter. He was the second one to translate, as far as I know, the book of Job, which was written entirely in verse, into English in verse, the first being Stephen Mitchell. And I love reading. I can't wait to, to get into Job later on. And Job may be one of the earlier texts, if not the earliest text in the Bible. This chapter 15 of Exodus is another candidate for oldest. So it's, it's definitely one of the oldest. And by the way, Ben, while you were talking, I just flipped through Alter's translation and I found that there is one other chapter that is as long, not longer, but as long as this one okay. in verse. Okay. And that's Genesis 49.
0: Oh yes, because of the blessings. Yes. Which we didn't talk much about in that podcast. That's right. That's
1: right. So I'll I'll read this translation of this chapter, chapter 15 of Exodus in verse from Robert Alter's translation. Then did Moses sing. And all the Israelites with him, this song to the Lord. And they said, saying, Let me sing unto the Lord, for he surged, O surged, horse and its rider he hurled into the sea. My strength and my power is Yah, and he became my deliverance. This is my God, I extol him, God of my fathers, I exalt him. The Lord is a man of war, the Lord is his name, Pharaoh's chariots and his force he pitched into the sea. And the pick of his captains were drowned in the reed sea. The depths did cover them over. Down they went in the deep like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is mighty in power. Your right hand, O Lord, smashes the enemy. In your great surging, you wreck those against you. You send forth your wrath. It consumes them like straw. And with the breath of your nostrils, waters heap up. Streams stood up like a mound. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I'll pursue, overtake, divide up the loot. My gullet will fill with them. I'll bear my sword, my hand to spoil them. You blew with your breath. The sea covered them over. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, mighty in holiness? Fearsome in praise, worker of wonders, you stretched out your hand. Earth swallowed them up. You led forth in your kindness this people that you redeemed. You guided them in your strength to your holy abode. Peoples heard, they quaked, trembled, seized Philistia's dwellers. Then were the chieftains of Edom dismayed. The dukes of Moab, shuddering, seized them. All the dwellers of Canaan quailed. Terror and fear did fall upon them, as your arm loomed big, where they were like a stone. Till your people crossed over, O Lord till the people you made yours crossed over. You'll bring them, you'll plant them on the mount of your estate, a firm place for your dwelling. You wrought, O Lord, the sanctum, O sovereign, your hands firmly founded. The Lord shall be king for all time. And then there's Miriam's. Sing to the Lord, for he has surged, O surged, horse and its rider he hurled into the sea. Now, Ben, I know you wanted to say something about the quality of this poetry because it's not rhyming. It is rather alliterative, right? Right. And there's something to be said about Miriam's poem as opposed to Moses's too.
0: Yeah. So, the longer one that you read here in the text, it's attributed to Moses. However, it was originally attributed to Miriam. And so, you, you read that short one, but the long one was actually originally attributed to Miriam. And right after that, we get this verse 20 of chapter 15. It says, "Then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out with her, after her with tambourines and with dancing." And then she sings her song. So, it calls Miriam a prophet right here in the text, which I think is is interesting. As far as the quality of the poetry with the alliteration the translation that you read yeah when i read mine you can see many of the times when the translation you have intentionally chooses alliterative words as opposed to what i see here in in the text i think one of the things that you brought out in one of the verses talked about dukes because the alliterative d matched with a few words before it as opposed to in my text it just says leaders and so there's many, many examples of that, and you see that through, throughout that version that you were reading. And so it's just, it brings out that, that poetic cadence and feeling that it's supposed to have.
1: Yeah, I was actually surprised to hear Dukes in this translation. And, and of course, it's there, as you pointed out, for the alliteration. It is the word that's chosen in, um, by King James. Not not necessarily in this chapter, but there's there are dukes earlier in the text. I remember someone asking me uh, a week or two ago, maybe more, uh, who are these dukes? Were there dukes in that time? And of course, this is a King James English translation of what would be a a tribal chieftain, right? Not, Not a duke. That's something that's that's a concept that belongs to King James time, not the ancient Near East. Yeah. Now it is the place of the women to sing of victory. And it is also common in worship to dance, and not just for women, right? So we could get the wrong idea here, right? That, as you pointed out, really, and as I've said, it's really the women's place to sing uh, the victory song, and that may be what, was, uh, what this originally was. And at the same time, it's, we shouldn't think that only women would dance in worship, because that's something that's common f- uh, for women and men. Oh, sure. Yeah,
0: they were just the leaders in this regard, like traditionally for them to to lead this tradition.
1: I guess you could say. That's right. That's a good point too to call it leading because what what we get here is there's someone leading and there's and there's a reply, right? The, so these we've read this as though you know I'm reading it, but if this is sung, there are parts. Right. right. There's somebody leading. There's there's others replying. That's how it works.
0: So then, so after they've conquered the Egyptians or the Lord has conquered the Egyptians, then they are free to proceed into the wilderness. And the first problem they run into is no water. And so they come to a place of water, but it's bitter, meaning, you know, it's not potable. They can't drink this water. And Moses finds some wood or a tree and throws it in there. And all of a sudden the water's drinkable. I have no idea what the naturalistic explanation for that would be, <laughs> but the idea, again, isn't a naturalistic explanation here. It's that the Lord is delivering his people, and even though they continue to to whine constantly, they are, are being delivered out of these things. And all of these instances get alluded to by Christ. So we, we can see a lot of Christology here, right? Uh, because it's even explicit in in the New Testament.
1: When you say they're alluded to by Christ, you mean by the the gospel authors, by right? Jesus. Because they, yeah, we, we talked about Matthew and how he mm-hmm. really knows his Old Testament and he really yeah. wants to read Jesus of Nazareth back into the Old Testament. Yeah, that's a
0: good nuanced point to make. Yes, right. Yeah, that you know Christ refers to himself as the water, you know the living waters, right? He's what he's right. alluding to is this story, yeah. right? And all the Jews- In wrote, Matthew's words. Right? And, that, and Matthew was writing to the Jews, right? And so all the Jews know that that's what he's talking about. And when he says, I'm the bread of life, all the Jews know he's talking about manna, right? That, that's what he's talking about here. And, and in fact, this story about manna, I always have to chuckle a little bit when we get to it because we call it manna, but the word literally means, what is this stuff? And uh, I just like to refer to it as like the original. whatchamacallit, you call it, you know? <laughs> you know, there's that candy bar called whatchamacallit. Call It. And it's like, if right. we really were trying to translate this into modern English, this bre- this stuff would be called whatchamacallit. Call <laughs> <laughs> It. Right. There is another interesting point here to be made about uh, measurements, and I know it sounds a little like boring, but uh, what this point brings out here is. The it kind of helps date the writing of this text versus the age of the story itself and shows that relationship there.
1: Yeah, and it explains why all of a sudden you have this random verse at the end of the chapter telling us the, about measurements, right?
0: Yes, exactly. So in the story, we get these measurements, an omer, an omer of this, an omer of that. Well, there's no other point in the Old Testament where I should say the knowledge of objectively what the measurement of an Omer is has been lost and was even lost by the time this story was written. And so we don't know in and of itself objectively what the measurement of an Omer is. We do know what an Ephah is or Ephah. And so we get this last verse in the chapter that says, An Omer is a tenth of an Ephah. And it's like this editorial note that's saying, right. Hey, you know, there's this story about manna, and they each have an Omer, and this story is being told. And somebody is listening to this story, and they then they ask a question to the person who's telling the story well, What's an Omer? And the person says, Well, an Omer is a tenth of an Ephah. And so that has to be thrown in as an editorial note because the use of the measurement Omer has completely gone out of cultural use. And so nobody knows what it is anymore except. For these very specific, these these oral tradition storytellers. And so they have to clarify that. And then when it gets written down, that has to be included in the text.
1: And that's assuming that they know it. And and it's it's so obviously an editorial comment. Now, Ben, you can tell me if I'm misreading this story, but my understanding is that those who received the mana were to keep an omer of it, however much that is, in perpetuity to be passed down throughout the generations as a witness, right? Here's this this actual manna that you can see. This is what we ate way back then. Am I misreading that? Because I wanted to know who has this today. Does somebody have it?
0: This is a question I had as well. The verse says, 32, Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations in order that you may see the food with which I fed you in the wilderness that I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, uh, there's a couple things I think to note about this. You know, Previously, it talked about if they gathered it and they tried to save it to the next day, it was just rotten and full of worms and you know not edible anymore, except for the Sabbath. Then you could you know, eat it the next day. But this isn't something you could ostensibly save. And so the idea here that the Lord is commanding them to save this for future generations, you're talking about like hundreds of years, right? And that it would somehow Survive in any meaningful form. It seems odd to me. The other thing is that there is some commentary on this, and and I I wouldn't have known enough about Israelite or Jewish culture or traditions to say otherwise. Is that this apparently isn't something that's done, isn't something that's observed? There's no manna, no omer of manna that has survived any amount of time. So. I don't have any additional commentary <laughs> on
1: that. We'll leave it at that.
0: So next thing that happens in the narrative is this battle with the Amalekites.
1: It seems so totally random, doesn't it? It does kind of seem to come out of nowhere. Yeah. And I was reminded in reading uh, commentary on this that this is something that happens in... I did I haven't read the, the Syriac texts that are mentioned, but there's Xenophon's Anabasis, which I've read with my kids. And this is what happens when you're off in this, this little band, as the people that Xenophon is writing about are, you just get attacked in this way. This is just, this is just what happens. And so it's, this is one more instance. Assailed by of, bandits. <laughs> right, exactly. So this is just one more instance of how knowing the genre of what, you're, of what you're reading helps to understand it, right? So if you've read stories like this, and I guess I, had, I didn't recognize that I, I read the Anabasis, but I didn't see that and when i read the comment i thought of course this is how it goes
0: well you know again when weaving different narratives and stories together the editor the the redactor that has all of these different stories the, he has to figure out how to fit them together and it's possible that this is not even in the right order not in the right place right but it, it, to him this seems the most reasonable place to put this story and so, it can seem out of nowhere to us, but at the same time, he has this story and he doesn't want to leave it out because this is you know, some a story passed down about Moses, a very important figure. I can't leave this out. I've got to include this somewhere. This seems to be the most reasonable place to put it. So, he's got to put it in here.
1: As I've pointed out, this is actually, it, it's not obvious to the modern day reader but it's actually the perfect place for it yeah because again as it goes you know this is how it goes
0: yeah you have these these different challenges uh, along the way you don't have water you don't have food and now you're getting attacked but at least you don't have to deal with the plagues of egypt right right <laughs> in in every case the lord either directly or through his prophet is delivering the people and in this case we have Moses with his staff and it, it earlier in the chapter it is explicit Moses says this to Joshua tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand and obviously the the implication there to Joshua is hey this staff can do anything right it can afflict our enemies think about all the stuff that it did in Egypt and it parted the red sea and it in fact just Just a couple verses earlier, I I hit a rock with it and water came out of the rock. So I'm going to be up on this hill with my staff. I can do anything that's needed. In the later verses, it says that he held his hand up, but I think the implication here is that he's got his staff in his hand or his hands, right?
1: Well, it's interesting to note that it doesn't say that he holds up the staff. So again, this is one more instance in which you can see two different versions of the same story. Yeah. On the yeah. one hand, he's going to hold up the staff. On the other hand, he doesn't hold up the staff. He holds up his arm. Right. The staff, of course, is a symbol of power, and it, that's often that power is often talked about by saying an arm. Mm-hmm. So it's the same symbol in that sense. Yeah. But again, if you're looking for the story to be absolutely consistent, it's just not.
0: Yeah. So we have Aaron and her that stand by Moses and hold up his arms so that he can keep the staff up so that Joshua can win the battle. This uh, is an oft-referenced scriptural account or story in our religious tradition when we talk about presidencies, where you have a president and then two counselors. Often we talk about the two counselors being the people on either side of the president holding up his arms,
1: right? Oh, that's so funny. I have never heard that. And And this is exactly how it goes.
0: This is often cited as a scriptural precedent for you know three people in a, a presidency. you have moses and 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 Aaron and her, and so this is also one of the inspirations for the concept of sustaining right that you hold up your arm to sustain someone It, it kind of comes from this that that you're holding them up in their calling and so this is given as a scriptural example of sustaining someone. You're gonna be the one that goes and and holds up their arms so that they can you know fulfill their responsibility, just a kind of little bit of latter day saint exegesis there
1: <laughs> that's how we do it yeah you know i that reminds me of another example just to you know to put a finer point on it. You have in the New Testament Paul if it's even Paul who's writing this letter it's it's of questionable authenticity uh in terms of authorship by Paul that he's Writing about women dressing modestly, and nobody is showing skin at the time. I mean, it's just not how it's done. Right? Nobody's. This isn't about showing skin. He's talking about what what actually shows up more um, more clearly in the Book of Mormon, which is whoever wrote that letter. It more clearly shows up in the Book of Mormon that dressing modestly means not wearing costly apparel.
0: Costly apparel or lots of jewelry and stuff. Yeah, Right,
1: exactly. But of course, if we want women to show less skin, then we say, look, Paul said women should dress modestly, and we read it in that way, which is anachronistic and has nothing to do with the text that Paul probably didn't even write in the first place. And that's how we do it. Yeah.
0: So we do, we often use scripture to justify our contemporary cultural narratives and and social conventions, so that definitely happens.
1: This is what's called proof texting,
0: yeah, well, as we look at this story overall, Christopher, you know before the recording we we kind of had this discussion of you know the meaning, the narrative, the story, and identity that's being forged and brought about here can be interesting, but like, what does it mean to me? I don't have Jewish heritage necessarily like. I don't identify with this story and narrative in the same way that these people did. So like what does it mean to me? Like how, what am I supposed to pull out of this? Um you know we touched on this a little bit with how we might approach this in a Christological sense or you know in a psychological sense. But um did you have any more commentary or thoughts on that?
1: This is, yes, I do. This is a question that we each have to answer for ourselves on the one hand, as you and I discussed pre-show, and at the same time, because Scripture is, again, this relationship that we have uh, as individuals to a text we consider a sacred text, and with those others who also have the same relationship to that text. So, So there's an individual answer that we have to come up with, and we have to reconcile it with the community answer the, the the answer of the community of believers that have that same relationship to that same text in this case the the old testament the hebrew bible and so that's one thing right
0: yeah i mean i see it as kind of a dance that happens you know between sort of the the collective meaning that's that's pulled from this and identity that's forged versus the individual tie to that identity or you know, strive to forge some new identity out of out of the narrative. So,
1: yeah. Another thing I can say is going back to what you were saying uh, before is that, and I had an experience of this. Unless I read this christologically, which I've made it a point not to do as I go through the Old Testament, you know, in this project of of preparing the podcast with you, Ben. I've made it a point not to read it in that way, and what I found was. In this case, in the case of this narrative, this central narrative, it it was what you said, uh, this rhetorical question you asked was a very real question for me. I thought, what has this got to do with me? Hmm. This, This has nothing to do with me, right? I'm not an ancient Near Easterner. I'm not even a Jew. What has this got to do with me? And so one of the ways that I can make the text meaningful for me is to read it Christologically. And that's how we do it as Christians. Yeah. That's what Christians have always done. And so we do that as Latter-day Saints. Another way, and both are valid, you know, and and there there are probably others too. And again, this is something that you, the listener, have to to figure out for yourself. We each do. What does this text mean to me? And we're told to do this, right? To liken the scriptures unto ourselves. Another way is psychologically. And I think, again, uh, having, you know, watched those lectures from Jordan Peterson, I got a lot out of that. There is a psychological meaning to these texts. It's not the only meaning. I don't think Jordan Peterson is saying this is the only meaning, but this is a meaning, and it's enough. It's actually sufficient. If there were no God, if there were no Christ, the psychological meaning would be deep and, well, it's deep psychology. That's what we're talking about, right? It would be deep and meaningful and significant and important to to humankind, and that is exactly the case that uh, Jordan Peterson makes when he goes up against uh the new atheists someone like Sam Harris yeah. who says look these texts are harmful to people and Jordan Peterson argues no they're not harmful to people as a matter of fact they're very helpful and you cannot just dispense with them as as the new atheists would have us do because they're harmful we we just have to get rid of them now of course we do have to come to terms with and as we go into next week's reading and we receive the law we have to come to terms with this idea that I've exposed before on the podcast which is we don't actually get our morality from the Bible. It sounds controversial to say, but unless you already have your morality firmly in place when you go into the text, you can come out with all kinds of strange ideas. And you don't. That's the thing. That's, the reason you don't is because you do have your morality going into the text, and that's how you choose what to ignore and what to follow. And you do. Everyone does. I don't think that I can kill my son if he doesn't obey me. Yeah. I don't, you know, but I do think I shouldn't steal and so on and so forth
0: the concept of the name of israel kind of comes into play here too right you know this struggle israel would be someone who struggles with god and and i think we can even say that could be somebody who struggles with the scriptures or you know what comes to be presented as god in the scriptures and struggling or wrestling with that i think is a good exercise and i i think that we shouldn't Shy away from it, or, or or give up on it. Like there's there's a lot that can still be pulled out of that exercise. Yeah. Even when we look at at this text and and we see, okay, these these people from their perspective, they seem to they seem to know who God is. Like they they think they do, right? They have God pinned down. He's a warrior god. He's more powerful than these. You know, they they have all these ways of of describing who God is and and they know how he's going to to act in these certain situations. And I think that is important to consider when we look at our own ideas of God. You know, sometimes we think we have God pinned down in a certain way. And, you know, approaching this with with some humility and poverty of spirit in a beatitudinal way, right? It would be for us to say, look, I'm willing to let go of some of my notions of God and allow him to reveal himself to me in a way that maybe he he hasn't before instead of imposing certain things on him and i think that's one of the narratives of the bible that we see again going into the new testament is that these people have this very codified way of viewing god and they think they've got it right they think they know exactly who god is and god shows up in the form of jesus and they don't know who he is, right? They don't even recognize him. They don't recognize him. And so it kind of calls us out, you know, and and even though we have the New Testament or we we have these later, more developed revelations of who God is or in the person of Jesus, we can still fall into the same idea and concept of, okay, we've got God nailed down. We've we finally know exactly how the box is drawn around God. And I think that this text can call to us in a certain way and say, hey, you know, don't be so sure about that. Be open. And 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 I think that was one of the points that Pete Enns brings out in his sin of certainty thing is is that, you know, we we think we can have things so exactly right, but what God is trying to lead us along and teach us and 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 reveal to us more. And and if we think we got it, this is what Nephi says, right, in the Book of Mormon. As soon as we think we got it all and we we have it all, we don't need any more revelation, then then we start losing what we have
1: right? No, and we do fall into that trap. We do. We fall into that trap, and, and we have to realize that even our very idea of God can be an idol. The temple can be an idol. We have to be able to, as in a beatitude in a way, to empty ourselves, to be poor in spirit, to be open to receiving, to not know. You can't get to know God if you already know God. And, and I, I wish I had said this earlier now, because now I could, you know, bring it back in when I was talking about Greg Boyd and his way of, of, you know, talking about God saying, listen, I'm not this warrior God that you think I am, that he, he wants us to be in a relationship with him where we can get to know him. And I thought about interpersonal relationships, the relationships that we have with our significant others, you know, it works the same way. If I already know who my wife is, how can I get to know who she is? Hmm. So the best way to be in relationship with her is to be curious and to be discovering who she is, not already knowing who she is. And it's the same with God. That's a great way to put it. Let's end with that.
0: For Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Ben Peterson.
1: And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Thanks.